Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It's Friday, May 26th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa, and today's intro is all about bike safety. Uh, Earlier this week, I got in a bike accident, so I just wanted to use this time to remind everyone, wear your helmet. I was wearing my helmet, so I was all good. Um, If you're driving, maybe look into the bike lane before turning and then somebody won't hit into your car despite slamming on their bike brakes. But that's a story for a different day. Um, I am okay. Could have been a lot worse. Um, So just wanted to use this time to tell everyone, please be safe. Biking is amazing. Um, The U.S. doesn't necessarily have as much bike-related infrastructure in major cities as I would like. Um, and that's what we kind of ran into today. But what's important is I'm okay. Bike got fixed and uh, no one was too badly injured. Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that you're okay. And you texted me this morning and I just saw that and I was like, oh my God. Like I was immediately expecting like the worst possible thing. And I'm just glad that you're, you're all good. Um, and definitely a wake up call, I'm sure, for people who are bikers and who are not wearing their helmets. Freaking get one, man, because it, yeah. it is not worth it. Uh, for sure. Like cars going like 20 miles an hour is enough to like completely knock you over. Yeah. So uh, definitely be uh, conscious of uh, always wearing a helmet and uh, your bike safety loss. Yeah, definitely. Definitely always good to be safe. And uh, you listeners, I know you're worried. It would take a lot more than a bike accident to keep me from pumping out a podcast episode. (laughs) Nick, let's do it. for our quick hits for the week and the first one is by patrick greenfield jillian ambrose and ellen ormishemer of the guardian and they write adverts claiming products are carbon neutral by using offsetting face uk ban so this is an attempt to crack down on greenwashing which is when companies use careful pr moves to make their products or their services sound more environmentally friendly than they actually are And in this case, what we're seeing is the UK moving to ban companies from being able to use three phrases, carbon neutral, net zero, or nature positive, if the only thing they are doing to reach those phrases is provide offsets. The caveat here is if the company can prove that their offsets really work, then they are able to still use those phrases. The way the offsets work is by calculating the environmental harm that's caused by using a product, then figuring out what it would cost to prevent an equal amount of that harm. The companies then pay that amount of money to a fund or a nonprofit to offset the damage of their business. So an example you might have run into when you go to buy a plane ticket, it'll say this plane flight will emit X amount of carbon into the atmosphere. Pay X amount to offset. Yeah. This is a crackdown to say, if that's all you're doing, then it's not enough. And unfortunately, offsets don't always work based on the nature of what offsetting is. So offsetting carbon emissions by planting more trees 
that's not going to work if those trees never reach maturity due to wildfire or drought or deforestation. Yeah. And the UK's Advertising Standards Authority conducted a six-month investigation before deciding to crack down on the use of those phrases. The article says that halting deforestation and protecting ecosystems is urgently required to limit climate change and biodiversity loss. But research of rainforest projects found that most offsets either did not stop deforestation or just dramatically overstated their impact. The article calls out Gucci and Apple as two companies that have reevaluated their relationships with offsetting companies in an effort to become more carbon neutral. Yeah, and to add on to that, the largest buyers of carbon offsets are typically oil companies. And the authors point out that Shell, as an example, is a major buyer of offsets as part of their environmental goals. And in classic big oil fashion, Shell disagreed with the findings of this report and said that offsets are important. So what I want to get across here is that, sure, offsets are important if they're working, if they're done correctly. You know, if you're offsetting whatever it is your product is, like let's let's use Shell as an example. If you're offsetting the cost of of the carbon emissions that you are putting into the atmosphere through your drilling or the methane you're releasing through fracking, like stuff like that. It's going to take so many trees to offset that damage. Yeah. And that's assuming that every single one of those trees gets to be mature enough to absorb the carbon that's created. And like, that's just disingenuous to think that like that is going to work a hundred percent of the time. So sure. Offsets are good. Like I don't, I don't want to downplay offsets being a good thing when done correctly, but it's way better to reduce consumption. It's way better to reduce emissions. Yes. It's way better to change like your business model if it's not working instead of just saying, oh, we have all the money in the world. Like take some of it since we're not going to fix anything. Yeah, exactly. I feel like for so many companies and so many products, they just want to slap those, you know, greenwashing buzzwords on there, like on their products or on their services, eco-friendly, environmentally mm-hmm. friendly, natural, sustainable, all that stuff. And they think that we're not going to do the work to, to go and see, like, can they substantiate these claims or is it just a, is it just a word that they can use to, to generate more profits? So uh, I'm glad that the UK is, is moving to do this and, and uh, we should hold account, the uh, companies accountable. Yeah, likewise. And, and I think a good example is like there are certain labels in food that we've talked about where like there's no real standard definition of what those words mean. Like I think all natural is one where it's like, yes. what does all natural mean? Yeah. And it can mean different things to different companies. So like on the one hand, you're right. We're going to do the work. You know, we're going to hold them accountable and see if these are correct. On the other hand, it shouldn't be on the consumers to make sure that like the products we are buying are being truthful. Yes. And it's good that we are able to hold these companies accountable, but like it should be their responsibility to tell the truth. Yeah. And maybe I'm being idealistic, but like that's how I think this should work. Yeah. No, agreed. And I wonder too, is it like an FDA issue? Are they just like just letting people say anything on their labels? I don't know. Maybe that's the issue. I think there's just like there's certain standards, but in certain ones, like they're just not tight enough. You know, right. like they're they're the, the looser the definition of something is on paper the more liberally people are going to use it on their products. And that's yes. that's what we run into a lot. Yes, exactly. All right, let's get into our next story from the New York Times, where Christopher Flavel writes, do or die talks reach deal to keep Colorado River from going dry for now. So we cover the Colorado River a decent amount on this show, but as a refresher, 
the reason that the Colorado River is in the shape that it's in is because the rights to water usage along the river were established in, I think it was like 1912 or 1922, over 100 years ago is, is the gist of it. And the river was at an all-time high. Every year since then has caused the water level to decrease because even when people are using their allotted amount of water, it's still more than the river can supplenish because it's never going to hit an all-time high every single year. So you pair that with climate change and drought, and you're seeing the Colorado River reach historically low levels. So the Biden administration negotiated an agreement between California, Arizona, and Nevada to decrease the risks to the water level along the river. And this agreement calls for $1.2 billion in federal funding from the Inflation Reduction Act to be used by irrigation districts, cities, and Native American tribes in those three states if they consume less water. So the states have also agreed to make additional cuts as needed to protect the river. The Colorado River is the drinking water source for 40 million Americans across seven states and the water source for 5.5 million acres of farmland. The river also generates electricity through dams on its main reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell. It also provides drinking water to parts of Mexico. The three states in this agreement get their drinking water from Lake Mead, which is formed by the Colorado River at the Hoover Dam. The rest of the states get their water from the Colorado's tributaries. Yeah, and this agreement goes through the end of 2026. That's why the headline says for now. Um, it will need to be formally adopted by the federal government, but this is basically going to provide temporary relief to a region that needs to see the river's water level begin to replenish. Last year, the Interior Department told the seven states along the river that they needed to reduce their water consumption by two to four million acre feet per year, which is the equivalent of the water usage by four to 12 million homes every year. They didn't reach an agreement at the time, so the federal government had to step in to further these negotiations. So Monday's agreement calls for 3 million acre feet conserved per year between now and the end of 2026, so right in the middle of that 2 to 4 number. The Interior Department was able to help negotiate for less drastic cuts than originally predicted because of the wet winter we saw in the American West, especially in California, which had unusually high levels of rain and snowpack. The Interior Department said it will study the effects of the deal between the states before deciding how to proceed. The next round of negotiations are set to begin next month and will be the starting point for what to do after this deal ends in 2026. Yeah, and what's interesting is I was listening to, um, it's only out this week publicly on Spotify, Apple, but starting next week, it's going to be available on like the New York Times audio app. Um, they have a new podcast called The Headlines, where they go over basically three big stories of the day. And Christopher Flavel, who wrote this article, was on the headlines. And he was saying that we have to look at this as like the preliminary, you know, first discussions. This is good that this is happening. But 2026, when this deal ends and the new one is set to kick in, that's going to be the big negotiation where like we need a long term plan for a long term solution or else this river is not going to make it. Yeah. So we can't look at this and be like, this is a big win. We have to look at this as like the correct stepping stone along the way to hopefully get us to that big win in 2026. Yeah, 100 percent. And like this is something where we have to figure it out. There's not it's not like an if it's like a when we figure this out. Um, and there's definitely a lot of work to be done here. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about 40 million Americans that are reliant on the drinking water that comes from the Colorado River, 15% of the U.S., 
and then 5.5 million acres of farmland probably servicing all of California um, where like we get almost all of our fruit and nuts from. That's a massive, massive deal. So uh, yeah, definitely no shortage of um, importance that this this uh, river has. Yeah, and I think what's what's really important here, you know, like you mentioned, this is going to impact millions and millions of Americans and our agriculture. What's important here is that like we aren't seeing the states say, hey, we did it. This is great. You know, like every single state was like, yeah, this is temporary. Let's have it expire. Yeah. You know, like let's let's reevaluate this. And even the Interior Department saying like they're going to study how this all works before deciding what's next. So conservation is always kind of this ongoing battle because as we learn more, as we study more, as we discover more, new challenges pop up. And in this case, I'm, I'm very, I, I guess I'm torn. Like I, I wish that we had a long-term solution agreed to already. I don't know if that was realistic. So I'm very happy. I'm very encouraged by the fact that this is only temporary and in three and a half years when it expires or two and a half years when it expires, we're going to reevaluate it because we need to. And even if this wasn't going to expire, we would probably need to reevaluate it because the entire water table is going to look different in 2026 than it looks today. So yeah, I like the setup of this agreement. Yeah, same. Agreed. A lot of work to be done. All right. We're going to move on to this week's environmental policy roundup. We have gotten some nice feedback so far on this, but please let us know what you think of it. I'm Really just looking for if you like a summary, if you want a short breakdown of each, if you want us to do what we did last week where we read the the summaries and then Nick and I talk about like one thing that jumped out to each of us. But let us know. Anyway, here is this week's. Colorado is set to become the ninth state and the first non-eastern state to place limits on pesticides that kill bees. The western bumblebee in Colorado has seen its population decline by 72% in some parts of the state, in part because of insecticides called neonicotinoids. This bill, once signed by Governor Jared Polis, will move the state one step closer to protecting pollinators. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has signed a new tax into law that will require electric vehicle owners to pay $400 to register a new EV and then $200 each year after that. Owners of hybrid and gas-powered vehicles do not have to pay this tax, but will continue to pay a $0.20 per gallon gas tax. The average owner of a gas-powered car roughly pays $130 per year in state gas taxes, so EV owners will be taxed at a slightly higher rate Per year. Montana Governor Greg Gianforte signed a bill into law that says state cannot consider climate impacts when analyzing large coal mines and power plants. Over 1,000 comments were written about this bill, with 95% opposing the measure before it was signed into law. Three out of five Montanans polled in 2022 said there's enough evidence of climate change to support a push towards renewable energy. If greenhouse gas emissions are required to be analyzed under federal law, they will be in Montana. This just says that the state will not require it. That caveat doesn't make things much better, in my opinion, as this is still incredibly stupid. (laughs) All right. As always, those three stories are in your show notes if you want to read for more detail. Nick and I are going to take a quick break, and then we have two more stories for you when we get back.
Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, world's largest ocean restoration project designed for Dubai by CNN's Nell Lewis. I feel like Dubai always has like the world's largest, world's tallest, world's deepest fill in the blank. (laughs) So Nell Lewis points out that this one is not just an architectural feat, like the tallest building or whatever. This is also a win for ocean conservation. Dubai Reefs plans to build 77 square miles of artificial reef that's going to provide a home for 1 billion corals and 100 million mangrove trees, according to the plan by URB, which is a Dubai-based sustainable city developer. URB also plans to build floating residential, hospitality, retail facilities, and eco-lodges. This would turn this ocean restoration project into a tourism hotspot, as well as a major ocean conservation site. The plan also calls for a marine institute that is dedicated to ocean research and education programs about marine conservation. Adding on to the lofty environmental goals, URB claims that this entire site will be powered by 100% renewable energy through solar, hydropower, and wave farms. They also plan to cultivate seaweed and oyster farms to sustainably produce food. This project is definitely going to face challenges, but URB anticipates construction being complete by 2040. Yeah, this is a cool one. Uh, Definitely something I didn't know that was really possible to build like artificial reef. It kind of makes sense that you could, I guess, just fake it till you make it until like there's like a whole ecosystem around it. But I feel like there still needs to be something that's actually like healthy bacteria, you know, like on the um, surface of the corals that the fish can interact with. I don't know. I'm just I'm just spitballing here, but that's what I would assume would be the main issue with a with an artificial reef as a whole um, project. I think this is really, really cool, though. So I'm excited to see what happens. Yeah, yeah, me too. And, and artificial reefs are actually like really popular all over. So one of the examples I can think of that doesn't take a ton of, of thinking to be like, oh, yeah, that that makes sense. Ships that sink. Oh, nice. You're not going to go down and like take a ship out of the ocean. So a lot of times divers will go down and look at like shipwrecks and you'll see all of the fish that have moved in and like the healthy bacteria that has since grown algae starts to grow and it becomes its own little reef ecosystem. Another one, and I forget what city this is in. So forgive me, but some U S city, um, I read this article that they were taking their old subway cars and just dumping them into the, the river out along like the outskirts of the city. That is so interesting fish will come in and start to use the open car as their reef. So yeah, artificial reefs are like super popular all over. Um, I guess on a very local level, a fish tank. Yeah. You know, that's 
a very small artificial reef, but yeah, they're, they're definitely popular. And in this case, it's really cool to see that there's this focus on education and renewables and this sustainable food. So I think this is very thoughtfully designed and, you know, like it's really popular to be sustainable right now. Mm -hmm. So I totally get them saying, Hey, we can make this tourism hotspot. That's going to make a lot of money for, for Dubai. But at the same time, we can do this the right way where it's really big for ocean conservation. So we are still 17 years away at best from this being completed. I really, really want to follow this closely and see like, you know, is there a catch? Is it as good as they're trying to make it? Yeah. Where were the corners cut? What is the downside? But I am really, really encouraged by this kind of architecture that it's not going to create new carbon emissions because of the way it's powered. It's, it's going to create a habitat for wildlife. That habitat can be studied by this ocean research and education institute that they're installing. And they're going to produce oysters and seaweed, which are two foods I absolutely adore. So yes, I don't see a downside here. I'm curious to see, you know, as more information becomes available, is there one? And if you could think of one when you're listening right now, like reach out to us, you know, I might have my blinders on right now by this being exciting to me. <laughs> I could be overlooking something obvious. So, so yeah. like, let us know. Yeah, definitely let us know. Hit us up in the comments, hit us up on Instagram, TikTok, all that stuff. Let us know what you think. All right, our last quick hit of the week is from Emily Anthes of the New York Times, who writes, bird flu vaccine authorized for emergency use in California condors. California condors are critically endangered species and one of the largest flying birds in the world. A 2020 census estimates that there are 504 left in the world, including 329 in the wild, which is actually up from less than 30 birds in the 1980s. As you can imagine, with any population that's that low, any major disease that threatens an already endangered species is treated very, very serious. So when more than a dozen birds recently died from the H5N1 virus, the U.S. Department of Agriculture swiftly moved into action and granted emergency approval of the vaccine for this virus. It was initially developed for a different version of the bird flu. So three federal agencies are now testing its efficacy on a close relative to the California condor, the black vulture. And if the results are positive, the first 25 captive condors are going to get vaccinated. Dr. Carlos Sanchez, the head veterinarian at the Oregon Zoo, said that condors appear to be highly susceptible to the virus and they tend to have a high mortality rate once they're infected. He called this a potential catastrophic collapse of the condor conservation project. This strain of the H5N1 virus first appeared in North America in late 2021 and has spread rapidly in every state but Hawaii. The virus has repeatedly jumped from birds to mammals, including humans that were in close contact with the birds. While the threat to the general public remains low, scientists are concerned that the virus could mutate to spread more easily. Yeah, so this is not going to cause the next global pandemic yet, but hopefully these vaccines prove to eradicate the virus before mutations continue and then that fear is fully on the table. Officials are considering a greater bird vaccination campaign if things go well early on, including vaccinating other species. USDA scientists are currently testing multiple different poultry vaccines and hope to have results back by the end of this spring. So something to keep an eye on is that infected migratory birds will be traveling north for the summer soon. So unfortunately, this could lead to further transmission of the virus. Yeah, I mean, this is like just another story. We had um, 
Carlton Ward Jr. on last week talking about Panthers and uh, the Path of the Panther on Disney Plus. Go check that out. And I watched it this past weekend and it was really cool, but it had a part where there was a panther that was going through like these neurological convulsions and it was like due to a, a virus. And it really made me realize how much mammals and, and, and animals of the world face disease and virus the same way that we do. And they were trying to do the same thing in the, in the documentary that they were trying to get them a vaccine. So hopefully the vaccine for the California condor works um, and we can protect this, this uh, population of condors. Yeah, that, that's a really good point and a really, I, I don't want to use the word good. <laughs> that's a good comparison, but it sucks. It really sucks seeing any sort of low population going through something that seems to spread through the species at a rapid rate. You know, you brought that up with the panther. They brought this up with the condor. What I want to point out before we, we wrap up for the day, anytime there is some sort of wildlife conflict, we run the risk of diseases jumping from that animal to humans. So when people talk about some of the impacts of climate change, the almost overlooked one, because it's not as obvious, is diseases are going to increase. And that's because we are encroaching on more wildlife territory. Mm -hmm. So we are in contact with more bats, more possums, more mice and rats and animals that can host diseases, but not be impacted by them. And then those jump to us and then it spreads. And that's how you see all of these different eventual pandemics break out. So yeah, anytime a vaccine can be developed by scientists like this one to, to nip the bird flu in the bud before it eradicates a species, before it jumps to mammals, before it jumps from those mammals in the wild to us humans, it's a good thing. So I'm really hoping that this study goes well and that the initial uh, trials on the, the black vulture lead to us vaccinating the condors and those work as well. If not, you know, it's back to the drawing board because this isn't a species that has enough numbers where you could say, oh, you know, if, if a certain percentage of them die out, they'll be okay. Like they, they almost died in the eighties entirely. Yeah. The country worked so hard to get those numbers back up. I'm really hopeful and I'm very optimistic that the scientists in charge with this conservation program are going to be able to maintain the population. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that will do it for today's episode of TPT. We will be back next Friday for another episode. But until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Also, have a nice Memorial Day. We are not doing any sort of episode on Monday, so if you have a three-day weekend in the U.S., enjoy it. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all of our music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can hear more of me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Happy Memorial Day! Happy Memorial Day!